You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Air Church. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love him and love their neighbour. We pray these sermons serve to deepen your love for and obedience to Jesus. And whilst we trust these podcast sermons bless you, we would not want them to replace you gathering with us personally as you're able to or committing to a local gospel church near you. So if you want to explore Jesus more, gather with us, or find a church near you, please get in touch through our website, harvestair.church. You are loved. We're going to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, so if you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be reading from verse 31 through to 37, and for those who have got a a pew Bible, if you like, or the Black Bible, it's page 760, I'll give you a a few minutes, just a a few seconds to look it up. Matthew 5, 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for this is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Let's just come at a time before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful. We thank you that your word changes hearts and lives. And Lord, we pray that as we would come before you, as we would listen to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish much in our lives today. Father, just help us to be humbled, help us, Lord, to be submissive. Father, be with me as he would preach your word. We pray, Father, that your word would go forth with power and it would accomplish much in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do um, keep your Bible open. Uh, Can you hear me okay? Please do keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter uh, 5. That's going to be helpful for you to have that in front of you. You can definitely hear me. If I need to, I've got a mic this week, so there we go. Um, So as Derek said, continuing on our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as we saw last week, Jesus has some significant and deep things to teach us. And he doesn't let up uh, in this week's uh, verses. So um, please do um, keep those in front of you, and we ask for the Lord's grace and help as we um, think these things through together. It has never been easier in the UK to divorce. Uh, no-fault divorce, um, in case you didn't realize, no-fault divorce 
was introduced in England and Wales in April of this year. And in Scotland, a form of no-fault divorce already exists. And alongside that, there you can hear me now, <laughs> alongside the, the change, the liberalization of divorce laws, we see marriage rates continue to decline overall. Uh, this year in England and Wales, the rate for heterosexual marriages is the lowest on record. So these things are the result, our society would say, of progress. Yet the fallout from divorce and the consequent instability of home life continues to be devastating. All the, all the stats scream the same thing. Monogamous marriage is good, divorce isn't. And that despite the valiant efforts of single mothers, children generally do much better in a home with a stable monogamous marriage. And it's these realities which are leading even non-Christians now to begin to recognize the value of monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage. Uh, a recent book published by an author called uh, Louise Perry, who's not even a Christian, she just recently published a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And it concludes with this, that monogamous, lifelong marriage is good and that the liberalization of divorce laws is nothing to celebrate. None of this should surprise us as we come to God's Word and we see His good design for marriage from creation. And in the verses we're in today, Jesus Himself warns against no-fault divorce. For you and me, marriage and divorce are issues which affect all of us, either directly or even indirectly, and so we need to listen to what Jesus has to say here. We need to listen to Jesus' warning this morning on keeping our wedding vows, as well as keeping all of our vows and promises. So these verses this morning, this passage, God is calling us here to respond by recognizing that real righteousness, which we've been thinking about in these verses, real righteousness involves not ending my marriage easily or making promises that are empty, not ending my marriage easily or making promises that are empty. So that's the first thing we see here in these verses. Real righteousness, genuine, heart-deep obedience to Jesus involves not ending my marriage easily. It's important for us as we kind of jump into these verses to understand really or get a grasp of God's design and intention for marriage from a whole Bible perspective. God, God created and instituted marriage itself from the beginning in the Garden of Eden to be a, a lifelong thing, okay, till death us do part. The old vows have lots of meaning and purpose behind them. Till death us do part to be a lifelong covenant, not a convenient contract, lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman established under God and before the community. And the Bible itself, if you're familiar with it at all, is a marriage story. It begins with that marriage in Genesis 2, and it ends with a marriage in Revelation 21, verse 2, a marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And in between those two bookends that we have in the Bible, we witness the, the faithful, steadfast, covenant love of God towards his chosen bride, despite her sinful rejection, her spiritual adultery, her wandering away from him, but God doesn't give up on her, does he? He doesn't give up on us either. He pursues her, he pursues us, and lovingly sends his bridegroom Jesus into the world in order to save us. 
So marriage is a, is a glorious gift from God to the world, which ultimately serves as an illustration or a picture of that eternal covenant love between Christ and the church. And it not only serves as a, as a beautiful illustration of that covenant love, it's also been given for the service of God's kingdom, lifelong companionship, the raising of family, and the welfare of society. So maybe even now you're beginning to see that everyone, regardless of your marital status, everyone has something at stake when it comes to marriage. Married or not, widowed, single, divorced, a child, someone who doesn't even believe in biblical marriage, all of this points to eternal salvation. And when we don't choose to live by this, when we choose not to live by God's good design, it results in earthly devastation. And so it's with that good and glorious gift of marriage in view, that good and glorious design in view. And let me just reiterate at the beginning, it is good. It is good to live out God's design in the context of the marriage relationship. With that glorious and good gift in mind, Jesus warns here against the cheap, convenient, no-fault divorce approach to marriage. If you look down at verses 31 to 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So the context Jesus is speaking into here is one where people were taking his commands, as we thought about in the last few weeks, taking his commands and just applying them in a shallow, selfish kind of way. Commands rooted in creation in Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And we also see in the Ten Commandments the commandment not to commit adultery. They were taking these things and applying them in cheap, convenient, shallow ways. Marriages were meant to last. But because of the, the hardness of our hearts, of the human hearts, God has permitted divorce on certain grounds in order ultimately to do damage limitation. It wasn't his intention from the beginning, but he has permitted divorce on certain grounds to, uh, to create damage limitation as a result of human sin. Jesus teaches us him, himself in Matthew 19, later on in the Gospel of Matthew. It'll be up on the screen for you. And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, and he goes back to creation here. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then they say to him, why then did Moses um, permit or command to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to do this. It wasn't supposed to be like that. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He says the same thing here in Matthew 5. Here we see once again, notice the theme of the heart. The theme of the heart. Jesus is calling us here to a deeper heart obedience when it comes to marriage compared to a hard-hearted approach which looks for divorce loopholes. In verse 31 before you, um, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 24, which contains a concession to God's original design for marriage, a divorce concession, 
which also serves in, the, in these verses to protect the wife in question from being exploited. And it's really these vo- verses which help us understand what's going on here. Deuteronomy 24, again, will be on the screen for you. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce, a second one, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. The issue here was that people were taking this concession and they were having a field day with it. They were taking this concession and having a field day with it. Indecency there in Deuteronomy 24 is the key word. They were taking that word and they were creating a loophole. There was much debate about what indecency meant. There was a number of different opinions at the time. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, some thought you could divorce for any reason, literally, and, I, and this is not joking, if, if the wife burned the dinner, okay? You might laugh at that, but that was literally one of the reasons that some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day gave for genuine grounds for divorce. Others were more restrictive and said that it had to be reasons for sexual immorality, much more in line with what Jesus teaches here. And maybe some examples we would have in our day. And I looked this up, and, and the stats on this are, are there for you to see as well. One of the top reasons cited in legal divorce is that the couple has fallen out of love. Similar, cheap reasons that exist in our culture today for divorce. We've fallen out of love. We've grown apart. I've lost my sense of identity. This is a consequence of viewing marriage primarily as something that is to be about self-fulfillment rather than a means of sacrificial love and serving my spouse and serving God. Jesus here in verse 31 and 32 and in Matthew 19, which we read, he raises the bar from no-fault divorce to divorce only in the case of sexual immorality. And we should emphasize here, just before we explore what he means by sexual immorality, we don't want to get there. We don't want to get there. We should emphasize that we don't want to end up in a place where we are seeking to clarify what that means. We don't want to end up in a place where sexual immorality and adultery is on the table in the first place. That's why we must fight lust so radically as we thought about last week. Really, that section on lust is key to this section on uh, divorce and adultery. So let's not get to these verses. Let's not have to think about how we should go about these things. Let's fight lust with the radical mortification that we thought about last week. Yet, our sinful world is deeply broken and the human heart is hard. Our human hearts are hard. And so sexual immorality and adultery in marriage do happen. And even though it's not God's original design and intent for marriage, he has permitted divorce. He's permitted it. But his intention has always been, it hasn't always been his intention, and he is particularly opposed to it when it's for unbiblical reasons. Why? Why is he opposed to it? Because it breaks apart what he has joined together. It breaks covenant vows we have made before God and to our spouse. And the covenant unfaithfulness that comes about distorts that beautiful picture, that beautiful gospel picture of covenant faithfulness of of God uh, between Christ and his bride, the church. 
So divorce is permitted. It's not an automatic requirement, though. It's permitted, yet it's not an automatic requirement. In Jesus' context, it was. It was basically like if there was adultery, if there was any form of sexual immorality, it was almost just like a domino. Okay, divorce ensues. It's permitted, but it's not an automatic requirement. Sexual immorality deeply violates the marriage covenant and vows, but nowhere does the Bible teach that it automatically invalidates it. So this is important to note, even where there are biblical grounds for divorce, the desire, your desire, my desire, our desire should always be for repentance and reconciliation. Divorce shouldn't be the first option on the table when things get hard or even when there might be biblical grounds for divorce. Shouldn't be the first option on the table and it doesn't have to have the final say in a marriage. Doesn't have to have the final say if repentance is expressed where it needs to be and all parties involved, the offender and the innocent, are willing to walk down the road of reconciliation, which although it may be painful, it may be long, there will be much heartache and damage. It can bring about much good. It might be long, it might be painful, but it can prevent much heartache and damage and bring about much good. Yet sometimes repentance isn't expressed. Reconciliation isn't sought. And so in some cases, divorce is the inevitable conclusion to a marriage. So coming back then to what constitutes sexual immorality, what does Jesus mean here by this exception? The word used here, the Greek word behind it, is the word pornea, which is a generic term for all sexual sin. For any sexual expression outside the context of covenant marriage. So drawing on the whole teaching of the Bible, we can say with certainty that that includes adultery, homosexual sex, incest, and bestiality. We can say those things confidently. Why though? Maybe you want to ask, why sexual immorality? Why sexual immorality as a grounds for divorce? Because it shatters and defiles that one flesh union between a man and his wife in a way that nothing else really does. It shatters and defiles that one flesh union. It's not irretrievable where there's repentance and reconciliation, but it deeply defiles it. Another question you might have in your mind, and, and let me just say I, I, kind of at the outset, you will have maybe many questions in your mind. Um, you can come and speak to me about those things. But the Bible is clear on certain things, and on those things we should be clear. Much wisdom and, and patience and prayer is required for others. Is there other grounds for divorce? There is one other clear ground for divorce in the Bible, abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16, which will be on the screen for you. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But, and here's the second exception, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
So here we have two clear grounds for divorce, sexual immorality and abandonment of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. And really that's the historical uh, view of the church, particularly since the Reformation. You see those two exceptions, for instance, stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, which if you have a Church of Scotland background, Church of Scotland background, you'll be more familiar with. Are there any beyond these two? That question itself must be asked with a humble, fearful, and reverent attitude before God and His Word. In asking that question, there's a danger that we fall into the same attitude as those Jesus was addressing here in these verses. The same attitude that was trying to find loopholes and broaden categories so that we can throw anything and everything into the two buckets of adultery and abandonment. So we must be cautious to go outside what's clear. Of course, in cases like abuse, we must prioritize safety. And yes, there may be wisdom in some cases for spouses to separate for a period of time in order to ensure safety and aid reconciliation. But much wisdom, caution, and prayer should be taken when seeking to navigate a way forward, especially given the often complicated and unique nature of each case of divorce and remarriage. And one of the main reasons, okay, one of the main reasons we need to be slow to find grounds for divorce outside these two clear ones is because of the devastation divorce brings and also because we want to make every opportunity for the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance and reconciliation, which is so desirable, isn't it? To make room for the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance and reconciliation, even if that might take much longer and be much harder than we'd ever dare to hope. So in verse 32, we see why Jesus is seeking to significantly raise the bar on divorce. We see another reason why he's raising the bar here, because getting divorced wrongly leads to not just one broken marriage. It creates a domino effect of sin and destruction. That's what we see in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in this scenario, the, the man has divorced his wife for a bad reason for an unbiblical reason and because of that her subsequent remarriage is considered adultery because the first one should never have ended and really in God's eyes hadn't ended in the culture of Jesus's day it would have been difficult for that woman to have survived financially and economically and so it was assumed that she would be married otherwise she would have struggled so it would have been typical for divorced women in this context to remarry here though if you notice you look down, the blame is put on the man who has unfairly divorced her and put her ultimately in a position where she now has to remarry illegitimately. And subsequently, the man that she remarries is also considered to be committing adultery. There's a warning here for the one who initiates divorce wrongly that they will bear the blunt of the blame. You notice that he says, makes her, makes her. The main point here is that if the divorce is not on biblical grounds, then subsequent remarriages are not on biblical grounds either, and the consequences are more adultery and more devastation. So when it comes to divorce and remarriage, verse 32 is teaching us, along with the rest of the Bible, 
that where the Bible permits divorce, it is so that the wronged or abandoned party may remarry. The offending party may not. If they do, both the offending party and the new person they marry commit adultery. Biblical grounds for divorce free the innocent party to remarry, not the guilty. To say that this frees both to remarry effectively means that adultery could be used as an escape button for someone to remarry as many people as they'd like. But if someone finds themselves in an unbiblical remarriage, then the general principle we see throughout the Bible and that we take from 1 Corinthians 7 would seem to apply, stay as you are, stay as you are. Breaking a second covenant marriage would only create more sin and devastation. Although the marriage may have begun with the act of adultery, which should be repented of before God and others, the marriage should not be thought of as continuing in adultery. The current marriage is real. Jesus himself calls it marriage, doesn't he? Jesus himself uses the word married of the second marriage in Matthew 5 there, and the man and woman should seek to joyfully fulfill their marital vows and obligations to one another in line with Scripture's teaching. So a number of significant implications for us from these things. To those battling lust and contemplating adultery, fight sin with all that you have. With all that you have. Cut off your arm. Tear out your eye. Immediately. Or face the earthly devastation and potential eternal destruction that it will bring. To those in the midst of adultery, hear this this morning. Stop it now. Confess your sin. Repent. Humble yourself before the Lord. Your spouse, the church, turn back to God and seek his forgiveness. To marriages that are struggling, fight for your marriage. Fight for your marriage. Get help. Seek peace. Pursue reconciliation at all costs. The, the preacher and uh, theologian Ligon Duncan says this, nobody falls out of love. They just fall out of repentance and forgiveness. No marriage falls out of love. It just falls out of repentance and forgiveness. To those contemplating divorce, few things cause as much distress, damage, and hurt as adultery and divorce, both for those directly involved, for children, and for society. And just because the law of the land might permit it doesn't mean God does. Yet there may be occasions where an innocent party is left with no option, and so it would be wrong to consider divorce in such instances as sinful or shameful. To those who are married, do not take your marriage vows lightly. Remember them. Fulfill them in the strength that God's grace supplies. Few things, few things in this world, maybe particularly in our current cultural context, few things make a bigger difference. Few things create more salt and light in this culture than faithful marriages and stable homes. To those who are single amongst us, do not enter into marriage lightly, if that is what God would have for you. There is a, a section in the Old, 
uh, vows which all stem from the, the Book of Common Prayer written by Thomas Cranmer. I'm not sure how many marriages uh, the, the original vows contain anymore, but uh, the original vows contain this. Christian marriage must not, and rightly so, Christian marriage must not be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but rather reverently, carefully, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. There's good reason why those vows were written. To the single, don't just marry the first person with a, with a heartbeat that comes across your path. Marry wisely. Marry wisely. Prioritize marriage preparation over wedding day preparation. Know that the most important thing you'll do on your wedding day is the vows that you'll make. It's not your dress. It's not the cake. As great as those things are and as, as much joy we should have in celebrating the marriage, the most important thing you'll do on that day is make your vows before God and your spouse. Remember that. To parents of those getting married, make sure you too put the emphasis in the place where it needs to be. Again, to those who are single, you might be thinking, this is a sermon all about marriage. I'm not married. I've not been divorced. Realize this. Realize how critical a role you can play and must play in counseling and keeping married people around you married. Because it is not only for their benefit, but for yours, for this church's, and for society's. For the church, let's remember this is an in-here issue as much as it's an out-there issue, right? It's easy to point the finger. We mustn't be found guilty of overemphasizing certain distortions of marriage whilst remaining silent about divorce and remarriage. As a church, we must guard and support marriages. We must recognize that one of the most significant ways we can be salt and light is through showing the world real covenant love through marriage. We must, as a church, prepare people well for marriage, right? We must, as a church and her leaders in particular, must hold marriage to God's biblical standards. And this is a really key point here, so hear me on this. This is a really key point. The church needs to, and God has gifted people into your life in the form of shepherds and elders, has given you people. The church needs to help people navigate the issues of divorce and remarriage because it is difficult and bad decisions have severe consequences. Let me encourage you, if you're married here, to submit your marriage to the Lord and to the shepherds of his church, to care for you and to help you navigate these things in a godly way. It's not easy, but you don't have to do it alone. The church must also repent where we have not done well with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We must help broken marriages to heal. We must, as a church, be willing to support and care for both spiritually and practically those who have suffered, particularly innocently, because of the consequences of adultery and divorce. I'm thinking here single parents with children, particularly. That requires an all-in commitment from everyone in the church. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? We need to be. And the church must also help those who have committed adultery to walk in repentance and faith. To those who disagree with and don't see the value of God's design for marriage, listen, we're not naive, right? The majority, we're in the minority when it comes to these things of marriage. I don't even pretend that everyone in here might necessarily agree with God's design for marriage. To those who disagree with and don't see the value of God's design for marriage, as it's revealed in his word, let me ask you, and I re honestly, I don't mean this in a sarcastic way or a condescending tone, how is that working out for you and for our society? 
I ask that graciously. That's not meant to be condescending. But how is that working out for you and for our society? Statistics say it's not. Statistics say it's not. This generation is conducting a marriage experiment that has abandoned its previous Christian moorings, and the first results are in, and they are not good. Let me just speak to the divorced here a minute. Firstly, to the innocent party, to someone who has been on the wrong side of divorce. If you've been the innocent party in the divorce, then know that God sees you and cares for you. Let me encourage you above all to seek Jesus and find your hope in him and his love and his security. Know that the shame and stigma do not have to define you. You're not a second-class Christian. That goes for children of divorce as well. Insofar as it depends upon you, pursue peace and reconciliation and commit to serve Jesus. And on the question of remarriage, let me encourage you to go to God's good and life-giving word and seek the help of your elders. To those who have been the offending party in a divorce, please hear me when I say this. There is boundless grace and forgiveness on offer. Boundless when we turn in genuine repentance from our past sin and turn to God. If you know that, then hallelujah. Recognize that there will be consequences, but that nobody's past sin forever defines them when they turn to Jesus. That's the great news of the gospel. Initiate and pursue repentance and reconciliation where possible. Initiate. Repent fully and totally before God and those who have been affected. Face up to the consequences, however hard that might be. And know this, that those who come to Jesus in faith, faith lose all of their guilty sin and stains. Those who come to Jesus lose all of their guilty sins and stains and shame. Yes, there may be consequences, but you too in Christ are not a second-class Christian. And likewise, on the question of remarriage, go to God's good and life-giving word and seek the help of your elders. And above all things, pursue godliness and holiness. And know this, for everyone, know this, God's redemption of adulterous people lies at the heart of the gospel story in God's word. God's redemption of adulterous people lies at the heart of who he is and what he is doing. God's people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, because of their persistent sin, were rightly issued a certificate of divorce by God in Jeremiah 3.8. Yet sin, adultery, and divorce didn't have the final word for them. Nor does it have to for us. We too, because of our sin, are considered, all of us, All of us are considered spiritual adulterers in God's eyes. But God didn't give up on them. He hasn't given up on us. He has sent his beautiful bridegroom Jesus into the world to die for you, to die for our spiritual sin and adultery so that through repentance and faith in Jesus, we can become the bride of Christ. We can have a husband who sweeps us up into his arms, who commits himself to us in unconditional covenant love who cleanses us and washes us from our sin, guilt, and stains, and is preparing us for an eternity with him. Know that this morning. That's what's an offer for all of us. 
So just as we are to take our, our marriage vows seriously and not look for loopholes out of them, so too Jesus goes on, really uh, uh, relevantly, he goes on now to speak and expand to uh, all vows. He goes on to expand this kind of seriousness and solemnity that we are to have with any vows and promises that we make. Real righteousness involves, firstly, not ending my marriage easily, and secondly, not making promises that are empty. If you look down uh, at verses 33 to 37, Don't worry, I'm not spending as much time on these verses as I did the first two. These verses that Derek read for us, really what Jesus is teaching here, again, it all stems from Old Testament passages such as Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, where oath-taking, okay, in the initial reading of these verses, we might think that we should never make a vow or make an oath. So that automatically kind of doesn't square with you if you've made marriage vows, right? But that's not really what he's saying here. He's not abolishing any type of vows or promises. In Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, oath-taking is not forbidden. It's just that the, the standard which it's held to is high. The issue at hand that Jesus is addressing here it is not the, the oath-taking or the vows themselves. It's the way in which those vows were being made. Again, it's the heart behind them. And we really see that later on in Matthew 23. Again, I'll be up on the screen for you. Woe to you blind guides. Here, here Jesus is getting at these religious leaders. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, okay, you catch the drift, right? Technicalities. They were creating little technicalities in order to invalidate or validate a promise or a vow. Maybe for us, it's the equivalent of um, whenever I made that promise to you, we didn't pinky swear, right? Or I had my fingers crossed behind my back whenever I said that to you. Or maybe when we think of a contract or an agreement, um, it's like we, we've made a contract in good faith, but we know that we've hidden loopholes in the small print. That's what Jesus is getting at here. It's making promises or vows in a way where we don't intend to keep them, where the heart behind them is selfish and doesn't intend to keep them. So Jesus, like he's been doing throughout all of chapter 5, he's not abolishing these commandments, but applying them in the way that they were always meant to be applied from the heart. And note that Jesus himself spoke under oath in Matthew 26. And Paul, um, in the, the letter to the, the, the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, in chapter 5, 27, puts the readers under oath he says, I put you under oath that you will spread this letter around. So we see that oaths themselves are not bad. What Jesus is doing here, and in a similar way that he kind of told us to cut our hand off and tear our eye, he's calling us to a more righteous and radical way of promising and vowing. He's calling us to be of such integrity, to be people of such integrity that our yes is always assumed to be a yes and our no is always taken to be a no. Our promises, our vows are trust, truthful and trustworthy. We don't tell lies. He's basically saying, guys, cut the caveats out. Cut the get-out clauses out of your promises, out of your vows. Simplify them. Make them sincere. Just say yes or no. Stop creating technicalities. So when it comes to our marriage vows, when we make them, we make them with an intention to keep them and to not find loopholes out of them. 
Other examples, if you're a member of this church, you will have signed a, a church covenant, a series of um, promises that we have mutually agreed to one another to keep. It means we keep that in a way that we don't look for loopholes. We don't look for ways we can bend and break them and get away with it. If you've signed a work contract, which most of you will have, it means that you don't look for loopholes, that you keep your promise to fulfill the obligations of that contract. If you've got a mortgage, it means you make your payments. If you're a teenager or when you were a teenager and you've promised to clean your room, it means you clean your room, right? I still get drafted into making that promise as well. So. We must only make vows and promises where we intend to keep them and follow through with integrity and sincerity. This kind of integrity is rare and it's so desperately needed today, isn't it? In the church, in our world, people who tell the truth, who follow through in their commitments and who don't try to wriggle out of them. And really it's been at the forefront of our screens over the last number of weeks uh, as we've uh, uh, witnessed the death of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, one of the most significant things that get replayed over and over again, if you remember, was the, the vows that she made on her 21st birthday. She said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in, in it with me as I now invite you to do I know that your support will be unfailingly given. And listen to this, God help me to make good my vow. And God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. So whatever you might think of the monarchy, despite whatever flaws she may have had, she is a human after all. That is a positive example. Her life is a positive example of integrity and perseverance within the public sphere of keeping vows. We too are called to this kind of integrity and heart-deep commitment. Real disciples, that's what this series is all about. Real disciples of Jesus don't look for loopholes in our marriage voice or in any voice for that matter. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. Real righteousness involves not ending our marriages easily or making promises that are empty. And real righteousness is possible because of Jesus the faithful bridegroom and the ultimate perfect promise keeper. His righteousness can become ours through repentance from sin and faith in him. And then in him, when we're married to him, we become the real righteous disciples God calls us to be and receive forgiveness and grace for when we fall short of our marriage vows or any other vows that we have strived in good faith to keep. So let's respond today. Let's act today to keep our marriage vows, to commit to not end our marriages easily and to not make promises to those around us that are empty. Let me just pray for us um, as uh, Dean and David come up to lead us in our song of response. Father, we recognize that 
we have all failed in these things. And whatever degree that may be, would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? Would you renew us and change us? Father, help us to look afresh in faith upon Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, the perfect promise keeper. We thank you that in him, our sin and shame can be removed, our lives can be transformed, and our eternity secured. Father, these are heavy things. We recognize that. But we thank you that your grace is deep enough to forgive where we failed and big enough to help us live these things out. Please help us to do that. Please help us to do that together in the strength of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.